This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. This episode of iFreaks is brought to you in part by Postcards. Postcards is the simplest way to allow user feedback from right inside your application. With just a simple gesture, anyone testing your app can send you a postcard containing a screenshot of the app and some notes. It's a great way to handle bug reports and feature requests from your client. It takes five minutes to set up, and the first five postcards each month are free. Get started today by visiting www.postcard.es. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 96 of the iFreak Show. This week our panel is Andrew Manson. Hello from Salt Lake City. James Zuber. That's James, no S. This might get confusing later. And I'm Orlando Brewington. Uh, and today we have a special guest, James Montemagno, and we're going to talk about Xamarin and wearables. So, uh, James, uh, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for having me on. It's awesome. I love the podcast, and it's great to be part of it. So, yeah, a little bit about myself. You know, I've actually been a longtime .NET C-sharp developer. I started early roots of development writing, you know, all C++. I was writing like command line, like Zork type, you know, text adventures in high school. And that got me into video games and programming in general. And then once I found that, you you know, you could use programming and make games for like the Xbox 360, I was like, oh, this is going to be crazy. So of course that's what I wanted to do. So I went off to college in Arizona. So I grew up in Cleveland, went down to Arizona for school. And I decided I want to be a video game programmer, did that released some game on the Xbox 360. And I was like, this is this is not fun at all. This is not what I want to do. <laughs> I found C Sharp as my like main programming language. And I said, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this love for video games and I'm going to go write printer software for four years. So I did that. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, tell, I tell developers, I'm like, you have to at least have a good solid four years of printer software development under your belt to really really, you know, know how awesome software development can possibly be. That's so. right. Are we doing drivers? Are we doing embedded stuff? Oh, just wait. It gets better. It's en- It was enterprise-level printer workflow management software. Wow. Yeah. It was actually a legacy .NET 1.1 application that we had the joy and honor and privilege of upgrading to .NET 2.0 and then 3.5. Doesn't get any better than that. Okay, we're changing the show topic. <laughs> it was great. I, I mean, I, it was all WinForms. Uh, we got to mix in a little WCF and a little WPF at some point. But once you started doing that, just everything fell apart, really. So uh, I'm guessing there was COM involved? <laughs> oh, like you, you would have no idea how much COM. COM everywhere, marshalling things for days. Just It was pure bliss. That was my world in 2008 to 2009, printer software and COM. Really? Yeah. So we had like a core team that worked on the printer drivers and, and the whole idea was is for like reprographer shops. So like blueprint printing, these huge mega printers, you know, that cost tons of money and the software was expensive, but our driver team integrated and did all the rasterization and we were just like that hub interface. And it was really cool. I mean, 
Maybe we I like deployed a server as like a SQL server 2005 and, you know, just deployed that and deployed little boxes. And yeah, printer software. I loved it. it was, yeah, lots of calm everywhere. I just crawled up into the fetal position. Sorry. <laughs> well, what, what was crazy is at some point I decided that maybe printer software isn't for me. I mean, I did love it. But what happened was I went to the final PDC conference out in Redmond. It was before Build and, and, and kind of all the bigger developer conferences were taking off. And that was like when Windows Phone was launching, Azure was launching. And that was the first time in my mind that I said, I have C-sharp skill base and I have this super powerful machine now in, in my hand and I can actually write great interactive experiences with it. So I decided to leave the printer, the luxurious printer industry, and uh, I moved to Seattle, Washington to become a mobile developer for a small startup. And I did that for two years. So it was, it was interesting. I walked into the office the first day and my boss says, you know, James, we're going to CES to demo some new products and we're going to need an iOS, Android, Windows phone and a Windows store app in two months. Go. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I didn't know Objective-C. I didn't know Java. I didn't even have like, I had my first Android smartphone. It was like the like Motorola Droid, it was like the flip phone, you know, they still had a keyboard at the time. And I didn't know any of it. I didn't know the tools. I was just making Windows phone apps. Uh, so that's when I found Xamarin for cross-platform mobile development. So it was great is that I was able to leverage all my C-sharp skills and knowledge that uh, I had acquired from writing awesome printer software, but at least the architecture of it, like databases and things like that. Like I actually learned a lot when you're in these huge enterprises learning architecture, which is very important even nowadays in mobile. And then take that over to iOS and Android. So I actually delivered those apps in the first two months for CES, and it was pretty awesome. It was really crazy. So there's a lot of long nights, but that's software development, really. So after that, so after two years of doing mobile apps, working for the company, I actually got hired at Xamarin as a developer evangelist. So all that means is that I still get to write mobile apps, uh, but I get to talk about it a lot more. So uh, I'm out in Dallas right now, going to be talking at some conferences and user groups, and I travel all over the place. And I have the honor of being on this side of the mic talking to all you guys on iFreaks. So I'm super excited. Very cool. I mean, they're, you know, the traditional Apple community, you know, there's not a whole lot of knowledge of Xamarin. They know, we know it exists. But when you get out into the .NET world, like, they love the idea of it. And they really... Like, oh, we don't have to learn a new language. So it's been very interesting to see the different communities, how they approach the problem. But it's, it's very cool. What I liked about it when I got it started was that I knew .NET and the libraries, and I knew C Sharp, so I knew how to write code. I just had to relearn some of the new APIs for Android and iOS. And I'm an Android guy. Like, I, I do love iOS. I love a lot of cool applications that I'm making for it. But I just enjoy to be able to, like, oh, man, I'm going to take an iOS you know, user interface, craft it beautifully for iOS, craft it as good as I can for Android, because it's not quite the most beautiful platform. We're getting better, we're getting better. But, uh, and then just kind of leverage all that code. And I think what's interesting is I always tell developers, at least Java developers, I'm like, you know, well, how many of you are like Java developers? And a bunch of people will raise their hand in the audience. I'm like, well, you know, you're almost there with Sharp. You just capitalize a few things and you're good to go. It's not that different, you know? Yeah, definitely. Java versus C Sharp. Pretty close. I've, I've called C Sharp Java Plus Plus in the past, where it was kind of an improvement on what Java had done. Well, and that's the idea of it, right? I mean, that was the base of where C Sharp came from, was the Java world. And the difference is that really Microsoft had really advanced the language over time, where Java just kind of hit a point and hasn't really evolved as much. So when you're looking at Android code that's in Java, like when, and then if you're writing in Xamarin, you get to take the niceties of the C Sharp language with events and async await support and a bunch of other really nice 
um, specific things around the C-sharp language. And of course, that just applies over to iOS development and Mac development as well. Don't forget Mac development. We still do that, which I think is a huge market that is still untapped to this day. So Me, I'm a Mac developer. And we've actually occasionally sort of toyed with trying to use Xamarin for some of our stuff, but haven't done it. That's the allure of the cross-platform development. And there's a number of different approaches you know, can we share our code? Or we have a bunch of C-sharp developers that already know how to manage their strings. You know, the C-string. Is that what it is in C-sharp? I don't even remember anymore. Just a string. Just a string? Okay. Just a string. Keep it simple. But, you know, once you've learned how to do string management, do you want to do it, learn it again for Java and iOS? Not particularly. If you know how to do network stuff, do you want to learn it again? You know, do you want to learn the, the Apple way and the Android way? Not particularly. So the cross-platform approach has a lot of appeal, and there's also some drawbacks with that. I think you expect to get a lot of code reuse, but how much do you get for most apps are you seeing? Well, so it really depends. There's there's multiple ways of developing with Xamarin, and, and for years it's just kind of been the Xamarin-native traditional approach, which is building out that separate user interface, which is my favorite approach, because then I get to take advantage of all the cool new widgets, you know, everything that's in the support libraries on Android, everything that comes out on iOS 8, like take advantage of all the great UI bits. So you're rewriting all those. Now, if you're structuring things in an MVC or an MVVM type of way, like just kind of structuring out, like really decoupling your user interface from your code behind of like your network calls, your database and things like that. On average, you can see a lot of people would say on average see 50 or 60% code reuse. And at the highest level, like my first apps that I shipped was 70% code reuse, which was really amazing. I didn't even know what I was doing when I was starting. You know, I was just kind of slapping code together. I only had two months. But it's kind of depends as, as you get better over time structuring your code and kind of building libraries. That, that's what I see is you start building these cross-platform libraries. So while in your first application, you wrote a bunch of code, because you're like, oh, I need to pop up some dialogues, but I'd really love to do that for my shared code. So you start writing interfaces and abstracting things away. And then you turn those into NuGet packages, which is like, which are like CocoaPods or, you know, Maven type of things, like different libraries that you pull down from a repository. Once you start creating these, then it's actually less code that you have to write. So it's kind of obscured in some way. So we have the, this idea of plugins for Xamarin. So when you go to nougat.org, uh, you'll see like all these plugins for Xamarin if you type that in. And I've wrote a bunch such as like connectivity. So like, you know, what am I connected to right now? Do I have internet access? Subscribe to change notifications. Or there's one for battery, one for launching maps and just little nice things that you need to do on each platform. But you, you don't have to write the code or like text to speech, right? All the platforms support it. So why couldn't I just access that from one API? So once you start using these libraries and building them out, it's actually less code that you have to write. And then you're really just focused on the UI bits. So, you, I mean, you could have no shared code if you wanted to. I mean, you just, I'm putting all my code in my iOS application and that's it. But if you start structuring things in a way of sharing it, I mean, I think on average you're going to see 50 to 60% code reuse. And then with Xamarin Forms, I think Frank touched on a little bit more. That's actually sharing the UI layer as well, which you could get all the way up to, you know, 90, 100% really but you're not having access to all the UI elements because it's a shared abstraction layer on top of the UI. Okay, that's an interesting approach, building a bunch of libraries that you can share with NuGet. Do you find that companies have their own specific libraries or is something that is general enough where you can share them? Well, so I think it depends. You know, the community around Xamarin is huge. You know, we have over 900,000 developers that have downloaded, tried out Xamarin, you know, and tens of thousands of paying customers. 
And, you know, it's interesting because our community is fantastic. I love it. If you go to our forums, extremely active, Twitter all the time, and GitHub as well, just sharing code and snippets of code. So I think the community and myself and Xamarin, we're supplying as many of these plugins, if you will, as, as you can. And we have our component store as well, which, which are kind of individual libraries. So if you need something like Estimo Beacons or something like that, you can go on there and get it or Azure Mobile Services. But then companies, what is nice is that you can have your own private NuGet feed. So you could write your own internally. And that, of course, comes down to the company, which is, does your company allow you to take your code that you wrote and pull it outside? Or, or can you do the reverse? Can you even use NuGet to pull it in? Uh, but which is nice about the plugins that they're all open source and almost all of them are under MIT license. So the code's all there so you can see what we're doing. That's the kind of the nice thing about it is. So if you want to see how text-to-speech works and how I implemented it in my plugin, well, all the code is there on GitHub. So you can just pull that down, see how I'm actually integrating into the iOS APIs with the AV speech synthesizers and, and then how I'm doing it on Android and on Windows as well. So I think that's what's interesting is, you know, you get to pick how much you want to share, how much you want to write with these libraries. So what are some other elements that are being abstracted in these libraries, like storage? So yeah, these plugins, and I'll put a link in the show notes as well. So we have an entire GitHub readme page of like where you can find all of them. I mean, it's anything from push notifications. We have a file storage uh, plugin called PCL Storage, which allows you to just access natively all the files. There's PCL Crypto, which is cryptography. So actually doing all of your encryption, uh, but it does it natively on iOS and Android or uses the .NET implementation on the Windows sides of things. There's like device orientation, like the simple things like like turning on and off a lamp, databases, obviously, with like SQLite or, um, I mean, almost anything that you can really think of. If you think of it, we have a way on our GitHub page like to actually just submit an issue and then someone from the community can pick that up and kind of run with it as well. So... Yeah, it's kind of anything that you can think of. That's the idea is, is coming in from, there's two points of view. There's coming in as a, a .NET developer, maybe not even a developer, just trying to look in. How can we simplify the process? Kind of that barrier of entry. Because when you start reading like tons of documentation or downloading samples, you start wanting to build out your application faster and faster. So that's where the plugins come in. It really helps speed up that development cycle, but all the code is there for you can read it so you can actually dive through and see what's actually going on, which I think is very important, which I really like how Xamarin works because I can still write an Objective-C iOS application if I needed to. I could still write a Java Android application I have. I've I've wrote many Java Android applications, and it's not a world I want to live in, but I can because I know how the platforms work because over time while I'm taking this great library of .NET, and sharing code there, I am then still learning how Android, how iOS works, how Mac works, if I want to dive into that world. So my skill set now is not just on a specific platform, but it's on all platforms if I choose to be. So one aspect that you talked about earlier I found interesting because the approach always trumpeted by Xamarin was, you know, you share your networking, your business logic, and the UI you do completely separate. I'm interested in some of the techniques that you find are useful to share the UI code, not Xamarin forms, but you know maybe navigation or showing dialogues. What do those libraries look like? So normally for sharing UI elements, uh, there's quite a few things that you can do. There's quite a few of MVVM frameworks built in or that can sit on top of Xamarin. Uh, so frameworks like MVVM Lite and MVVM Cross, they bring in a navigation paradigm. So the idea is like linking a page, like this is a page or a screen of my application to this code file, 
and they bind together. So the idea is like, okay, this label is bound to this string, so it knows how to update them automatically. Or when I'm navigating to and from, I say, I want to navigate to this page, it just handles it for me automatically. So those are like larger frameworks that are built in that sit on top of Xamarin cross-platform. So that actually allows you to remove quite a bit of code or manual work that you have to do for the user interface. And then you have the things that sit on top of the user interface, such as, like you're talking about the alerts and dialogues and pickers and, and like date time. So normally what I do for that is I just have an interface that says, well, what I would like to do at some point is pop up a message box that has a title and a message or allows me to enter text or an action sheet pulls up from the bottom that you know lists my options or there's a delete button. So I, I say, this is what I would like to do on all the platforms. And then I actually go into each platform and I write that code. Now, this is going to be one of those libraries then that is shared. And I only have to write that code once, ever, is the idea. So once I write that code to simplify my life of, of handling dialog boxes or navigation or these frameworks, uh, I only have to write that code once. And then I can share that on NuGet or do whatever I want with it. So normally that's what I would do is and I've wrote that code to pop up dialog boxes, I think, a hundred times. And you know, before I actually was like, you know what, I could actually just share this. And just put it in NuGet and then make it work. So that's kind of one of those niceties there. So without Xamarin Forms, like just traditionally, when you're sharing your UI bits, like the Mac side of things and the, the iOS side of things are actually really nice because a lot of the namespaces are the same and colors are the same. So you can just if def, you can do a conditional compilation. So you could say, well, when I'm in iOS, you know, I'm going to use this color. And then when I'm in Android, or I mean on, on Mac, I'm going to do this specific thing. And you can put that in your shared code as well. We have a great blog post on blog.xamarin.com from Mike James, another one of our evangelists. He's an iOS Mac guy about code sharing strategies just to share more code between your iOS and your Mac application. And then, of course, you could do things like I have this color, which is a this is my color. But what this color really means on each platform is the Android specific color or the iOS specific color. So that's how you kind of think about it is how do I make this generic, I guess. So are there any sort of edge cases that you've experienced with that approach that says, okay, 80% of the time or 90% of the time, this works perfectly, but you need to watch out in these situations? So that's a great question. I mean, I don't think I've ever ran into a, personally, this is personal for me, is in, in the four years, three and a half years or so, four years that I've been doing Xamarin development, I've never ran into a situation where I just couldn't do something. Like, I wasn't like, oh, man, I need to do this, and it's not available. I can't do it, because we have 100% API coverage. Now, one thing, obviously, is that there's tons of Objective-C and Java developers, so a lot of times those open-source projects are just available. So, for instance, like with material design on Android, there's just a lot of libraries that either you have to write yourself because you just can't, you know, or, or you have to create a binding for it. You have to kind of create a C-sharp wrapper on top of the Java, so it's not actually anything built into the framework. Sometimes it's just the open source community where there's a lot more of them. There's a lot more Java developers writing Android applications. So like they're getting up to speed faster. So like it's just up to the community to kind of port those over or rewrite them from scratch. So sometimes I just have to write a little bit more code, but it's also good to see how things work. Uh, I would say like that's kind of like the one edge case. I never really ran into anything where I was like, oh man, I really, really wish I could do this. Because if there's something I want to do, and maybe it doesn't exist in the current .NET profile that I'm writing, well, it probably exists in the iOS or Android SDK. Because if I need to tap into Bluetooth, or I need to tap into, you know, NFC or iBeacon support, I'm going to write that specifically against 
core location or core Bluetooth in those APIs. There's not like a .NET implementation of that that abstracts it away. You could, of course, but you can always tie down into it. And then, of course, you know, I think with Xamarin, you know, we have a great relationship with Google and Apple, and we're able to get into the developer previews just like any other developer. So our same-day support for iOS is, like, always right there, and we have support and everything like that. And Google's getting a lot better of releasing their SDKs and new versions faster. So we're able to do previews ahead of time, and I think that transitions into, like, what's next for mobile development that I have to think about? Because the one gotcha, I think, with cross-platform development is, all right, well, I started with an iOS and an Android application, and maybe I'd do it on Windows, but now I have to pull in an Apple Watch application or an Android Wear application. Like, do I have to worry about the new Microsoft Band? And there's an SDK for that. Like, okay, how many code bases am I managing? And, like, how much in my mind can I keep together? You know, so that's almost like the gotcha of a cross-platform mobile developer is now instead of just, you know, supporting one platform, you got to support all these platforms and try to figure that out, which is why kind of architecting good code is important. So tell us a little bit about the Xamarin approach for developing on the watch. Can you do cross-platform things with that as well? So Apple Watch is extremely interesting, and and we have uh, preview support for Apple Watch right now. Obviously, iOS 8.2 and the new versions of Xcode are still in developer preview from Apple themselves. So what's interesting is we've actually gone ahead and done the Apple Watch support a little bit different than how we've done other support in the past, which is we're having this developer preview. We're in our third preview right now. And the first one didn't have storyboard support. You actually had to go into Xcode and Interface Builder and build them. And now in version two and three, we have that in Xamarin Studio and Visual Studio, the actual storyboard. So the approach is very much the same. We just have some nice templates. So, you know, with WatchKit and the Apple Watch, you're always going to have an iOS app. For, I should say not even just an iOS app. You have to have an iPhone app, not an iPad app. But you have to have an iPhone app, according to Apple. So you have to have the iPhone app. And then, so you're either going to create that from scratch, or if you already have one, you just say file, new project, or watch kit app. And what that'll do is that'll create your uh, watch app and your extension. So we've really tried to streamline the process down to very similar to what you're doing over in Xcode, which is you have multiple projects inside of there. And one's your watch app, one's your extension app. And then one's your main iOS application. And then at that point, all of the, everything else is kind of available to you. And I think you guys have had a great earlier episode on just how WatchKit works in general. And all that still applies to Xamarin development. So, you know, your extension, well, your, your watch app itself is what's living on the watch, right? That gets installed. That's all kind of at runtime. There's no changes like your image assets. Everything's bundled into that watch app. And then your extension app is, is actually where things are running. So the extension sits side by side your iOS app and the extension's executing code if it wants to, if it can, and it's updating the UI element. So in that aspect, your extension's almost a little bit kind of, it's smart, but not that smart because if it needs to do longer operations or it needs to really tie into things, it needs to actually go talk to the the main application and then do some shared file storage between the two as well. Like if you have a database and you want to sync it up between all three as well, you would tie that all together in that aspect. But from the Xamarin point of view, it's going to be exactly the same as building it over in, you know, with Objective-C or Swift, which is that you still have your projects, you're building out your storyboards. And I think the shared code story is, is probably what's of interest here because the, the watch kit application is actually pretty different from an Android Wear application, but you're still able to share code across them. That's interesting. So by following sort of this frameworks approach or module approach, you can still 
gain some savings there, even though those platforms are, are really different and take a different approach to wearables? Yeah, the, the interesting thing, I don't know how much you guys have talked about Android Wear uh, on the podcast at all, but Android Wear is very... Oh, hold on, what's Android? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a whole other operating system that you might Weird. have heard of from a company. It's a little company. They're called Google, I believe, Google. is how they pronounce it. Google. Uh-huh. They're mostly just use searches, is from my understanding. Okay. Um, oh, that. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Like 10 years ago. Cute. Yeah. They they used to run maps on the iPhone, but not anymore. So kind of, yeah. So so Android Wear, like, what's interesting is it is Android, like a hundred percent. Well, ninety eight percent. There's like a few things you can't do on it, like some of the sensor support and things that are just don't exist on an and a Wear to a watch device. But when you run an Android Wear application, it's all of Android. Like all of Android, all of the layout system is available to you. You can do anything on it. To be honest. So when you we're can, talking about wearable devices, watches, what are the, the glass, are there other ones that we're not talking about? So there's, yeah, Google Glass, there's Android Wear, I think for wearables, obviously Apple Watch, there's the Pebble, obviously, as well. There's ways of doing Pebble development, which is mostly to C development, but it's kind of has its own SDK and different things. There's a new version coming out. The Microsoft Band, which are more of the fitness type things, there's an SDK for that for... Windows, iOS, and Android as well. So tying in and integrating that into your application. Yeah, I guess that's probably like what I would consider wearables today. But, you know, I think right now they're existing on our wrists, but they're going to exist everywhere else. I think the wrist and the watch is like that friendly form factor, like putting something on your glasses. Like we're not there yet, like maybe in the future. Like I think that that's the idea that Google wanted to go with it is kind of feel it out. And it's a great idea. It's interesting. But I think more people are familiar wearing a watch on their wrists. So it's kind of like that easing someone into technology. You know, I don't think my dad will ever wear an Apple watch, you know, but it would be a little bit less odd, I guess. Yeah. With a watch, you finally have a useful grocery list app. So you don't drop your phone all over the place and smash it to pieces next to the grapes. Exactly. And instead of just all of us carrying around our phone and yelling at our phone, now we can just yell at our wrist and just tell our wrist what to do. Hey Siri, you know, make sure I get, you know, bananas later. Because who doesn't want to do that? I'm curious to know in a little more depth about some of the differences between Android Wear and, and Apple Watch. So we went over Apple Watch a lot on our Watch Kit episode, but to recap, the app runs on the iPhone and you get proxy objects and you're, you don't really actually get to run your own code on the watch itself. You just get event callbacks and can push some limited information back the other way, but you're not running full featured apps on the watch itself. How does Android Wear stack up in that sense? Can you actually run your app on the watch? Yeah, so on Android side of things, the Android application that you deploy to Google Play or anywhere else is housing another app inside of it. So there's physically two APK files, and an APK is just like an IPA file. It's the actual deployable bundle that you deploy to the app stores. So you bundle your watch application into your main application, and that's what gets synced over to your Android Wear device. But that application, there's two things with it. There's the aspect that all of Android is available to you, so any API is available to you. It's running Lollipop. It's running 5.0, the latest version of, of Android. So all of the APIs are available to you. So You can execute run code, you can make network calls, you can have a database there, you can have embedded resources, you can generate dynamic content. It's a full application, 100%. The question comes down to, should you be doing that? You know, you can do all these animations, everything is there, 
but th these aren't the most powerful devices in the world. Like the Moto 360 is running like a 500 megahertz processor, you know, so it's not a lot of processing power. So trying to do tons of animations are there, nor should you be trying to sh shove your entire application into an Android Wear application or an Apple Watch application to that extent too. So the different and intricate part is that everything's talking over Bluetooth LE, of course, or Bluetooth Smart, I think it's supposed to be officially titled now. So if you make a network call, and this is where I think Apple tried to say, well, we don't want you making network calls from your watch because that doesn't make any sense. But on Android, you could. You could say, I would like to go pull down a bunch of new data from a server or sync this with Parse or with Azure or something like that. You could run that code on your watch. Like, there's no reason you couldn't. But you're communicating over Bluetooth LE, which is extremely slow. It's supposed to be for small bits of data. So what's nice about Android Wear is that if you need to modify the user interface, your application can do that. So your your main application on the watch can modify the user interface, adjust things, you know, pull in database, run and execute code, which is you cannot do that on an Apple Watch. Doesn't exist. Like you that little extension method over the little extension application on your iOS application is doing that and kind of in, invoking into it to, to adjust some properties or hide things to make it feel dynamic, but it's really not, it's all static. But on the Android side of things, we still have that concept though. We have a concept of data synchronization. And what's really cool that Google did with Android Wear is they removed a requirement on the operating system. And, and let me specify that because on iOS, to be able to run an Apple Watch application, you're gonna need iOS 8.2 when it comes out with that version. You're just gonna need it. You're, you're gonna have to have the latest iOS versions and, and your latest iPhone versions to pair those together. What Google did is there is nothing specific in Android Wear that's built into the operating system of Android. The only requirement is that you have to have Android 4.3 because that's where Bluetooth LE existed. From a developer point of view, I just add a bunch of libraries so on the, the actual watch side of things, I have a UI library called Android Wear. The Android Wear UI has a bunch of specific things that I can actually deploy into my application. And then I use Google Play services to actually do like a pub sub, like a messaging service back and forth. So if I need to do some data synchronization from a main application over to my Android Wear application, I can kind of create this bridge to say, hey, something happened over on my watch, like I got a new location, like you need to go update something. So I kind of send a notification over to Android, uh, the Wear application, it can go do something. And then I also at the same time, have an entire data synchronization model. So there's like a Dropbox, which is kind of similar to the iOS uh, shared file storage between all of your applications. So you kind of have this bucket, it's like this big bucket of data, it's almost like this big JSON file that you can use as a synchronization method. And what Google does at that point in Google Play Services, which is just like a big library, it handles all the synchronization for you. So on your main application running on the phone, you say, I have a bunch of data, I pulled this down and I'm synchronizing this. I'm gonna go ahead and put that into my application and Google will go ahead and actually go ahead and tap that into the main Android Wear application for you automatically. So. When you're building your applications, you can think of it like that data synchronization part and that the database and any of your file calls that need to be synchronized with Android Wear could be your shared code over on iOS. So anything that's running in your extension is kind of what's running in kind of like a background service over on Android 
to do bigger data calls because you don't want to do huge data calls on Android Wear. So that's how things are kind of structured. They're, they're similar, but different. That's really interesting. I'm kind of curious because we know we actually uh, have information from Apple that there's more coming to WatchKit. They said, I can't remember the exact wording, but they essentially said that full apps are coming later this year. And I'm curious to see how that looks now in contrast to Android Wear, because it seems like in some ways that's, you know, what we might expect to come from Apple is is where Android Wear already is. Yeah. And I mean, so notifications in general, they kind of did this correct, I think, on both parts is that notifications just show up automatically and then you can extend notifications on each platform. So you can add in specific these glances feature notifications with interactive elements and you can do the same thing on Android. So I think that while the when Android Wear started, it was only notifications. They extended it later, actually when the, the devices came out. But we don't really know what's going to happen with Apple watches because we don't have the devices. You know, we're going to find out on the 9th, I guess, and the devices are going to come out, I guess, in April. So, you know, who knows how these applications are even going to run on those devices. So we're just kind of living in this world like we don't know. And the question is, like, do we even want to be able to do more with them? Because if how the current architecture isn't up to snuff, per se, like, do we actually want to try to do more on the Apple Watch? Just like, you know, you you have the ability to do everything on Android Wear. Like, should you? That's always the question. Like, should you do that network call? Should you try to use Bluetooth LE and do, you know, beacon search and all this stuff on Android Wear? So that's like the intricate part of it, I guess. Yeah, as a 20 second animation. Is that a good user experience? Probably not. I mean, you do get a nice 20 meg image cache over on iOS, so you can definitely generate a bunch of GIFs if you want. I still call them GIFs, but it's okay. You know, the, the, what's a great user experience? I think that's always the question. There's a lot of great links. I have a really great blog post from Craig Dunn who kind of summarizes like all these different UI elements. And the same thing went, was true for Android. When you look through the idioms of a wearable application, everything should be accomplished in under five seconds. So, if I have to perform an action or if I as a developer have to do something, it should take no longer than five seconds. Because as a user of a wearable, I don't want to look at my watch for more than five seconds. I mean, and normally we never had to, right? We're looking at our watches for time. I shouldn't have to interact or pinch or do anything on a, a wearable device for more than a few seconds. It's all about getting in and out of your application. So a 20 second animation probably isn't the best use of any other wearable application. No, probably not. Anything other than five seconds and your user's going back to Twitter or Snapchat or whatever they're doing. Yeah, it should be, like, I almost think of it as, I wouldn't it be amazing? I travel a lot for work. I, I travel all over the place. And it's always a pain. I have to boot up the Southwest app, and then I have to, like, load it in. I have to tap on this, and I have to tell it, yes, I would like to get my boarding pass. Like, what if my boarding pass just came up, like, automatically? It knew my location, did everything automatically for me. Like, I, I shouldn't have to think about an Android or an iOS application running on my wrist. Like, it should just kind of do it for me automatically. And I think that's the challenge for developers. And that's why over on, on Android Wear, actually, your application running is actually hard to get to. You actually have to swipe around left and right. You have to go to this application list. Google specifically made it hard to find applications because they don't want your users actually running applications. They want it to be more context-based. So it should be like, I need to, you know, navigate somewhere. I should be speaking to my wrist to say, I need to navigate home. And then it just takes me there automatically. Or I need to add this item to a list and it just does it automatically, which is a stark contrast from that home screen, that watch face over on Apple Watch, which you can't change. It just is. Um, you know, developers can't make watch faces from my understanding at this point on, on Apple, like you can on Android. So you have all those different apps running and kind of 
available to you. So I think it'll be interesting once I get my hands on the actual physical Apple Watch. For all of us, it'll be extremely interesting to see how we use it. Like, are we actually poking around in it, or do we just kind of get sick of it and just, like, expect more out of the applications? And what do you guys want out of it? What do you guys want? Have any of you used any of the wearables yet, or is this going to be, like, your first experience with them? I have a Pebble, first-generation Pebble. And, I mean, really, the main thing that it does, it does have apps, but the main thing that I use it for is just notifications on my wrist. And I do like it for that, but it's pretty limited. It's not like it's a mind-blowing thing. It's not like my iPhone, where the first, I bought the first iPhone the day it came out, and, like, from then on, you couldn't imagine living without your iPhone. But Pebble's not like that. It doesn't bother me if I forget to wear it or something. I'm actually excited about it. I haven't worn a watch in a long time, but even I hesitated to get a, a Fitbit. I would like something on my wrist that I could use at the very least to track, you know, motion and things like that when I'm exercising. Of course, that doesn't really justify buying an, an Apple, <laughs> the Apple Watch, but uh, for work as well, we're pretty excited about what we may be able to do. In fact, we've already started doing some designs and I'm um, looking forward to getting our hands on a physical watch pretty soon. I'm excited for the Apple Watch too, and I hope that it's... uh the it and the things it can do are sort of more compelling than the existing stuff. Although, of course, I haven't tried Android Wear, so maybe it's already sort of there. But uh, I don't have an Android phone, so kind of a dead end for me. Yeah, I think this was kind of interesting. Is like you have to have you. It's like it's very tied to the platform right now. So it's like all right now. Now I got to think about now if I switch. This is what's interesting from the from their point of view. It's like now I'm committed to like an, an Android Wear watch and an Android phone. Like man, to make a switch over to to iOS, now I got to invest. You know, not only for a new iPhone, but also for an Apple Watch. Like you're now you're really really invested in the platform. That's right. You know, watch, phone, tablet, everything. Vendor lock in. It is. It really gets you. When's but the Windows I, watch coming out? <laughs> well, that's a good question. So they did the Microsoft Band, which is interesting, actually, because it actually works with every single device. It works with iOS, it works with Android and Windows, back and forth. But it's more of a fitness device that has an SDK, so you can push notifications and run, like, really small applications on it. But it's it's kind of like a really more advanced Fitbit, I would say, than actually a full smartwatch. So I'm not sure what they're going to do, what what Microsoft's going to do next in general. They're trying to open it up to try to be more cross-platform, but they don't own the SDKs. That's where Apple and Google can actually tightly integrate into their libraries. So that's kind of it. But I think you guys will be interested. I'll be interested because when I got my Android Wear application, my Wear watch, like I was, I hadn't worn a watch in eight years and I was really excited about the potential. And the biggest thing I think to make an, the Apple Watch and Android where successful was that it still needs to do one thing, like good, like amazing, is that it should be able to tell the time. I feel like Android Wear is like 50-50 on being able to tell the time, you know, and that's kind of my, my problem. Not that the time's wrong. It's just that like the screen, it comes and goes. Like when you're wearing a traditional watch, I mean, you just look at it and like, there it is, right? So I, I'll be interested to see what they do on the, the Apple side of things once I get my hands on one. We actually had this discussion among some some friends, I think just yesterday we were talking about this and, you know, somebody said, well, my watch really has to do one thing perfectly for me to want to wear it. And it, and that is to tell me the time. And, and that's actually something the Pebble does really well because it has an always on screen. It doesn't turn on and off. And even the Apple watch has a gesture where when you lift your arm up, the screen comes on. But if that's not perfect, it's going to be really annoying, you know? So I'm interested to see. Hopefully it's perfect, right? Hopefully every single time you raise your arm, it comes on. And then, of course, battery life is the other big question. You don't really want your watch to 
I don't care that much if the smart features stop working, you know, as the battery gets really low, but make sure I can tell the time all day at the very least, right? <laughs> that is like the most important part. And yeah, and, and Android Wear did the same exact thing. And then battery life was always the killer. It's like one day, I'm like, my smartphone only lasts a day. It's like constantly plugged in. You know, now my smartwatch has to be like only, you know, one day. It's a lot of things charging all the time. That's the only, only gotcha, I think. You know, it's a good point about the watch, but you could have also said the same thing about the phone. And how often do we actually use our phones as a phone? Use it for a I, lot more. I plan, I like to never use my phone as a phone. I think that's the worst use of a phone. I hate if I actually have to use my phone as a phone. I use it as an email device. That's pretty good. And a Twitter reader. That's about it. <laughs> I would agree. I think, I think using it as a phone is my least favorite use. Um, and I actually replaced my watch. It's one of the reasons why I stopped wearing watches. Well, I, I agree, except that I wouldn't, uh, we have, we have an iPhone that's not a phone. That's an iPod touch and that I certainly wouldn't carry one, right? I mean, uh, of course the big issue there, I guess, is that it doesn't have a cellular data connection, but still my point is I wouldn't have an iPhone if it didn't work as a phone, even though that's not the main thing I do with it. It's a pretty crucial thing. Kind of like the Trojan horse. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's there when you need it. Like that's the most important part is like, oh, if I do need to make a phone call, it's there. Uh, which is good. I actually I work from home uh, most of the time, which is which is nice. And I use Google Voice, and I actually just bought a physical landline phone, not connected to landline, but connected to Google Voice. There's this little like twenty dollar box that you can buy, connects to your network, and whenever my cell phone rings, it just calls my phone like at home, so I don't have to use my minutes or anything. And I actually find I like that a lot better than actually having to like hold my phone and and try to type and do all this stuff. So it's kind of interesting. So do we? Uh... Do you have any other things we want to discuss or move on to picks? I think we're good. Okay, Jane, what do you have for us this week? I have one pick today. So I live in Minnesota, and among other things, we don't really have good access to barbecue. This is terrible. I know, Alondo, you're in North Carolina. James, you're in Dallas. Y'all. It's an embarrassment of riches here. That's right. Y'all you <laughs> can get some barbecue if you want. If I want barbecue, like really good stuff, I got to get in a car and drive south to Kansas City. So this Christmas, I got a smoker, electric smoker, and it's awesome. Now, the purists might be thinking, you know, it's got to be wood-fired and all that. But you want to spend 12 hours outside in 10-degree weather cooking up a brisket? No. Okay. So the purist thing doesn't really work in Minnesota. But I bought an electric smoker from Cook Shack. It's awesome. I've done, like, four or five briskets in the past couple months. Starting to get pretty good at it. I think Alondo's probably having a compile error thinking, Cow barbecue? <laughs> How does that work? I was really stopping myself. Like, don't say anything about it. <laughs> but people that taught me how to, how to barbecue do brisket, they're from Texas. So that's kind of what I know. So that's what I'm doing. And my wife likes it. So it's all good. So I got the Cook Shack Smokette Elite. It's not cheap, but neither is driving six hours to Kansas City to get barbecue. So that's my pick. Excellent. Andrew? Yeah, I've got a number of picks today. I started out not having any ideas, and then I a bunch of stuff. Thought of, thought of a bunch of stuff that I wanted to pick. So the first pick is a, a new, a brand new Mac app that just came out called MonoDraw. It's actually still in beta and it's free during the beta. But there was a blog post that went around, uh, I don't know, a couple, few days ago about sustainably pricing your indie software, and it was actually a blog post by the developer of this app. So I, I almost wonder if that blog post was not to get attention for his app, but uh, his app deserves the attention. It's a uh, MonoDraw is an ASCII art editor for the Mac. So think of it like Photoshop, except that it outputs text files that are ASCII art, and it looks really cool, uh, just like a really well-done Mac app, and I've played around with it a little and super easy to get going with, but it's 
quite powerful. And um, when I first saw this, I thought, well, I don't need that because I'm not going to be drawing ASCII art. You know, what's the point? But then I thought about it, and it's actually it, it actually could be really useful if you're, for example, writing documentation and you want to put a diagram in your documentation, or you want to you know put a flowchart in your documentation, or or whatever. So I'm going to sort of see if I can come up with good ways to use it in my development work. But you can also draw funny ASCII art pictures with it and stuff. So that's MonoDraw. My second pick is the light blue bean, and this is a Bluetooth 4.0 Arduino. Basically, it's a really small little board. Uh, the th- it's just powered by a coin cell. It's got a Bluetooth 4.0 module and then an Arduino processor. The thing I think is really cool about this is they actually have an iPhone app that will let you program the Bean over Bluetooth with a program that you write on the iPhone. So I think the way they're doing it is they actually send your program up to their server where they compile it and then send the binary back down and send that to the, the board over Bluetooth because they can't compile code on the iPhone. But anyway, they've cleverly gotten around that limitation and it it just looks like a cool thing to play around with uh, Bluetooth 4.0. My last pick is a kit called the 3.5s kit and it's a 555 timer chip made out of transistors that's like looks like a giant 555 and it's actually by a company called Evil Mad Scientist Laboratories and they've got a bunch of cool stuff so that's worth checking out. Those are my picks. Cool. So I have uh, two picks this week. The first one is is a book, uh, Refactoring to Patterns by Joshua Karevsky. So it was something that has come in handy the last couple of weeks because I've been doing a lot of refactoring of old code and uh, just trying to improve it for reuse and extracting things that can be used in place in the modules. So it, it's just a handy reference. It's a nice book to have on the shelf. And the second pick is um, iOS 8 by Tutorials, which is the latest tutorial book from the Ray, Ray Winderlet. And uh, it includes a nice tutorial about WatchKit. So if you want to, if you're the type of person that learns by doing, but you need a little bit of guidance, I highly recommend it. So, uh, James, what are your picks? I'm super excited. I really had to think about this for a while, and my list was ginormous. So I put stars and asterisks next to them for the ones I really care about. So I'm going to do three, but the third one's actually two of them together. So <laughs> the first one is a book, and I, you might have talked about this before, but it's it's Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. It is the best book ever written, I think, in general. It's kind of a science fiction dystopia with tons of 80s and 90s video game and movie and music references. It's fantastic. They're making a movie out of it. His new book, Armada, is coming out. Uh, I've recommended this to everybody, and I don't read books. I hate books. I hate reading in general, but I think this book is fantastic. I read it in like two days. Uh, and everyone I recommend it to it, it, it is blown away by it. So it's Ready Player One. And then I still want to have an app since I'm an app developer. I thought that that would be good. Uh, so I've recently, I, I cycle all the time for my life. I love cycling. I'm doing this big Seattle to Portland bike ride since I live in Seattle. Just happen to be in Dallas right now from the luxurious Hyatt house in Dallas. But I'm starting to use Strava a lot. I used to use my, my tracks. And Strava, just like the social aspect and segments and gamification of riding a bike or running has been excellent. And even if you're using another app, you can export all of your data, your GXP or GPX data and import it, which is really nice. And I've just been blown away by the application and it's really well done on iOS and Android. I just think the app like is blown away. Over the years, I've tried to use so many GPS tracking location applications and and this one really just kind of just nails it, I think. And they've been around for a while, but just me finally getting it, I've been extremely happy with it. And the last one is 
is actually like services. So this service, it's a little bit newer. It's it's a, it's only in like in Oregon, California, and Washington. And it's called Tavor. So Tavor, uh, and we'll a link to it, obviously, but it's kind of like one of those, like a box a month deals. But the difference with Tavor is it's all about craft beers. So what they do is they send you an email every single day of a hand-curated craft beer, and they give you this whole story. Like, their copywriter is fantastic. Like, they give you a whole story about the beer, where it's from, like, the, about the brewery. And you just email them back if you want one or not. Like, you can say, I want one to six of these, and they're usually bigger bottles. And I'm not a really big beer drinker, but I like a good craft beer with a great story behind it. And then once a month, they ship it right to your house. Like, everything that you've ordered. So you, like, get the first of the month. And you just have like this amazing box set of craft beers. Now, if you're not into beer, there's another service that I use. I'm all about the boxes. And so it's kind of like my third slash fourth. So it's also called Gray's. Uh, Gray's started over in Europe and it actually made its way to the U.S. And obviously, instead of alcohol, this is more of the family-friendly approach. It's um, snack boxes. So they do these little like tiny snack boxes that you can get once a week, every other week. And they're just amazing, like from like dried fruit to like crackers to like little granola bars. And they just started this big sharing box. So it's like larger portions. And it's only like $5 for these boxes delivered to your doorsteps. So I use those all the time because I travel so much, I like throw one of these little things in there, just going out. It's a little great snack. Um, it's called Gray's, uh, which is, I've been using it for years. It's just really fantastic. So those are the, those are my picks. Awesome. Awesome. So, well, thanks again, James, for coming. I uh, really enjoyed uh, talking about Xamarin and wearables. We're really super excited about it. Does anybody have anything else? If not, we'll wrap up and we'll see everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash form. 